Part 2, Chapter 8 of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Marx Aveling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2, Chapter 8. At last it came, the famous agricultural show. On the morning of the solemnity, all the inhabitants at their doors were chatting over the preparations. The pediment of the town hall had been hung with garlands of ivy. A tent had been erected in a meadow for the banquet. And in the middle of the place, in front of the church, a kind of bombard was to announce the arrival of the prefect and the names of the successful farmers who had obtained prizes. The National Guard of Bouchy, there was none at Yonville, had come to join the corps of firemen, of whom Binet was captain. On that day he wore a collar even higher than usual, and, tightly buttoned in his tunic, his figure was so stiff and motionless that the whole vital portion of his person seemed to have descended into his legs, which rose in a cadence of set steps with a single movement. As there was some rivalry between the tax collector and the colonel, both, to show off their talents, drilled their men separately. One saw the red epaulettes and the black breastplates pass and repass alternately. There was no end to it, and it constantly began again. There had never been such a display of pomp. Several citizens had scoured their houses the evening before. Tricoloured flags hung from half-open windows. All the public houses were full, and in the lovely weather the starched caps, the golden crosses, and the coloured neckerchiefs seemed whiter than snow, shone in the sun, and relieved with the motley colours the sombre monotony of the frock coats and blue smocks. The neighbouring farmers' wives, when they got off their horses, pulled out the long pins that fastened around them their dresses, turned up for fear of mud and the husbands, for their part, in order to save their hats, kept their handkerchiefs around them, holding one corner between their teeth. The crowd came into the main street from both ends of the village. People poured in from the lanes, the alleys, the houses, and from time to time one heard knockers banging against doors closing behind women with their gloves, who were going out to see the fate. What was most admired were two long lamp-posts covered with lanterns that flanked a platform on which the authorities were to sit. Besides this, there were, against the four columns of the town hall, four kinds of poles, each bearing a small standard of greenish cloth, embellished with inscriptions in gold letters. On one was written, To Commerce, on the other, To Agriculture, on the third, To Industry, and on the fourth, to the fine arts. But the jubilation that brightened all faces seemed to darken that of Madame Lefrancois, the innkeeper. Standing on her kitchen steps, she muttered to herself, What rubbish, what rubbish, with their canvas booth. Do they think the prefect will be glad to dine down there under a tent like a gypsy? They call all this fussing doing good to the place. Then it wasn't worthwhile sending to Neuchâtel for the keeper of a cookshop. And for whom? For cowherds, tatterdemalions. The druggist was passing. He had on a frock coat, nankeen trousers, beaver shoes, and, for a wonder, a hat with a low crown. Your servant, excuse me, I'm in a hurry. And as the fat widow asked where he was going, It seems odd to you, doesn't it, I who am always more cooped up in my laboratory than a man's rat in his cheese? What cheese? asked the landlady. 
Oh, nothing, nothing, Homme continued. I merely wish to convey to you, Madame Le Francois, that I usually live at home like a recluse. Today, however, considering the circumstances, it is necessary. Oh, you're going down there, she said contemptuously. Yes, I am going, replied the druggist, astonished. Am I not a member of the consulting commission? Mere Francois looked at him for a few moments and ended by saying with a smile, That's another pair of shoes. But what does agriculture matter to you? Do you understand anything about it? Certainly I understand it, since I am a druggist, that is to say, a chemist. And the object of chemistry, Madame Le Francois, being the knowledge of the reciprocal and molecular action of all natural bodies, it follows that agriculture is comprised within its domain. And, in fact, the composition of the manure, the fermentation of liquids, the analyses of gases and the influence of miasmata, what, I ask you, is all this, if it isn't chemistry, pure and simple? The landlady did not answer. Homais went on. Do you think that to be an agriculturalist it is necessary to have tilled the earth or fattened fowls oneself? It is necessary, rather, to know the composition of the substances in question, the geological strata, the atmospheric actions, the quality of the soil, the minerals, the waters, the density of the different bodies, their capillarity and what not. And one must be master of all the principles of hygiene in order to direct, criticise the construction of buildings, the feeding of animals, the diet of domestics. And, moreover, Madame Le Francois, one must know botany. Be able to distinguish between plants, you understand, which are the wholesome and those that are deleterious, which are unproductive and which nutritive, if it is well to pull them up and re-sow them there, to propagate some, destroy others. In brief, one must keep pace with science by means of pamphlets and public papers, be always on the alert to find out improvements. The landlady never took her eyes off the Café Francois, and the chemist went on, Would to God our agriculturalists were chemists, or that at least they would pay more attention to the councils of science. Thus, lately, I myself wrote a considerable tract, a memoir of over 72 pages, entitled Cider, Its Manufacture and Its Effects, Together with Some New Reflections on the Subject that I sent to the Agricultural Society of Rouen, and which even procured me the honour of being received among its members, Section Agriculture, Class Pomological. Well, if my work had been given to the public... But the druggist stopped. Madame La Francoise seemed so preoccupied. Just look at them, she said. It's past comprehension. Such a cookshop as that. And with a shrug of the shoulders that stretched out over her breast the stitches of her knitted bodice, she pointed with both hands at her rival's inn, whence songs were heard issuing. Well, it won't last long, she added. It'll be over before a week. Armée drew back with stupefaction. She came down three steps and whispered in his ear, What? You didn't know it? There is to be an execution in next week. It's Leroux who is selling him out. He has killed him with bills. What a terrible catastrophe, cried the druggist, who always found expression in harmony with all imaginable circumstances. Then the landlady began telling him the story that she had heard from Theodore, Monsieur Guillaume's servant, and although she detested Tellier, she blamed Leroux. He was a wheedler, a sneak. 
There, she said, look at him. He's in the market. He's bowing to Madame Bovary, who's got on a green bonnet. Why, he's taking Monsieur Boulanger's arm. Madame Bovary, exclaimed Homais, I must go at once and pay her my respects. Perhaps she'll be very glad to have a seat in the enclosure under the peristyle. And without heeding Madame Lefrancois, who was calling him back to tell him more about it, the druggist walked off rapidly with a smile on his lips, with straight knees, bowing copiously to right and left, and taking up much room with the large tails of his frock coat that fluttered behind him in the wind. Rodolphe, having caught sight of him from afar, hurried on, but Madame Bovary lost her breath, so he walked more slowly and, smiling at her, said in a rough tone, "'It's only to get away from that fat fellow, you know, the druggist.' She pressed his elbow. "'What's the meaning of that?' he asked himself, and he looked at her out of the corner of his eyes. Her profile was so calm that one could guess nothing from it. It stood out in the light from the oval of her bonnet, with pale ribbons on it like the leaves of weeds. Her eyes, with their long curved lashes, looked straight before her, and though wide open they seemed slightly puckered by the cheekbones because of the blood pulsing gently under the delicate skin. A pink line ran along the partition between her nostrils. Her head was bent upon her shoulder, and the pearl tips of her white teeth were seen between her lips. Is she making fun of me? thought Rodolphe. Emma's gesture, however, had only been meant for a warning, for Monsieur Leroux was accompanying them and spoke now and again as if to enter into the conversation. What a superb day! Everybody is out! The wind is east! And neither Madame Bovary nor Rodolphe answered him, whilst at the slightest movement made by them he drew near, saying, I beg your pardon, and raised his hat. When they reached the farrier's house, instead of following the road up to the fence, Rodolphe suddenly turned down a path, drawing with him Madame Bovary. He called out, Good evening, Monsieur Leroux. See you again presently. <laughs> How you got rid of him, she said, laughing. Why he went on allow oneself to be intruded upon by others. And as today I have the happiness of being with you. Emma blushed. He did not finish his sentence. Then he talked of the fine weather and of the pleasure of walking on the grass. A few daisies had sprung up again. Here are some pretty Easter daisies, he said, and enough of them to furnish oracles to all the amorous maids in the place. He added, shall I pick some? What do you think? Are you in love? she asked, coughing a little. Hmm, hmm, who knows, answered Rodolphe. The meadow began to fill, and the housewives hustled you with their great umbrellas, their baskets and their babies. One had often to get out of the way of a long file of country folk, servant maids with blue stockings, flat shoes, silver rings, and who smelt of milk when one passed close to them. They walked along holding one another by the hand, and thus they spread over the whole field from the row of open trees to the banquet tent. But this was the examination time, and the farmers, one after the other, entered a kind of enclosure formed by a long cord supported on sticks. The beasts were there, their noses towards the cord, and making a confused line with their unequal rumps. Drowsy pigs were burrowing in the earth with their snouts. Calves were bleating, lambs baaing. The cows on knees folded in were stretching their bellies on the grass, slowly chewing the cud and blinking their heavy eyelids at the gnats that buzzed round them. 
ploughmen with bare arms were holding by the halter prancing stallions that neighed with dilated nostrils looking towards the mares. These stood quietly, stretching out their heads and flowing manes, while their foals rested in their shadow, or now and then came and sucked them. And above the long undulation of these crowded animals, one saw some white mane rising in the wind like a wave, or some sharp horns sticking out, and the heads of men running about. Apart, outside the enclosure, a hundred paces off, was a large black bull, muzzled with an iron ring in its nostrils, and who moved no more than if he had been in bronze. A child in rags was holding him by a rope. Between the two lines, the committee men were walking with heavy steps, examining each animal, then consulting one another in a low voice. One, who seemed of more importance, now and then took notes in a book as he walked along. This was the president of the jury, Monsieur de Roseray de la Panville. As soon as he recognised Rodolphe, he came forward quickly and, smiling amiably, said, What, Monsieur Boulanger, you are deserting us. Rodolphe protested that he was just coming, but when the president had disappeared, Ma foi, said he, I shall not go. Your company is better than his. And while poking fun at the show, Rodolphe, to move about more easily, showed the gendarme his blue card, and even stopped now and then in front of some fine beast, which Madame Bovary did not at all admire. He noticed this, and began jeering at the Yonville ladies and their dresses. Then he apologised for the negligence of his own. He had that incongruity of common and elegant, in which the habitually vulgar think they see the revelation of an eccentric existence, of the perturbations of sentiment, the tyrannies of art, and always a certain contempt for social conventions that seduces or exasperates them. Thus his cambric shirt with plaited cuffs was blown out by the wind in the opening of his waistcoat of grey ticking, and his broad-striped trousers disclosed at the ankle nankeen boots with patent leather gaiters. These were so polished that they reflected the grass. He trampled on horses' dung with them, one hand in the pocket of his jacket and his straw hat on one side. Besides, added he, when one lives in the country, it's waste of time, said Emma. That is true, replied Rodolphe, to think that not one of these people is capable of understanding even the cut of a coat. Then they talked about provincial mediocrity, of the lives it crushed, the illusions lost there. And I too, said Rodolphe, am drifting into depression. You, she said in astonishment, I thought you very light-hearted. Ah, yes, I seem so, because in the midst of the world I know how to wear the mask of a scoffer upon my face, and yet how many a time at the sight of a cemetery by moonlight have I not asked myself whether it were not better to join those sleeping there? Oh, and your friends, she said, do you not think of them? My friends? What friends? Have I any? Who cares for me? and he accompanied the last word with a kind of whistling of the lips. But they were obliged to separate from each other because of a great pile of chairs that a man was carrying behind them. He was so overladen with them that one could only see the tips of his wooden shoes and the ends of his two outstretched arms. It was Lesty Boudoir, the gravedigger, who was carrying the church chairs about amongst the people. Alive to all that concerned his interests, he had hit upon this means of turning the show to account, 
and his idea was succeeding, for he no longer knew which way to turn. In fact, the villagers, who were hot, quarrelled for these seats whose straw smelt of incense, and they leant against the thick backs stained with the wax of candles with a certain veneration. Madame Bovary again took Rodolphe's arm. He went on as if speaking to himself. Yes, I have missed so many things, always alone. Ah, if I had some aim in life, if I had met some love, if I had found someone. Oh, how I would have spent all the energy of which I am capable, surmounted everything, overcome everything. Yet it seems to me, said Emma, that you are not to be pitied. Ah, oh, you think so, said Rodolphe. For, oh, after all, she went on, you are free. She hesitated. Rich, do not mock me, he replied. And she protested that she was not mocking him when the report of a cannon resounded. Immediately all began hustling one another pell-mell towards the village. It was a false alarm. The prefect seemed not to be coming, and the members of the jury felt much embarrassed, not knowing if they ought to begin the meeting or still wait. At last, at the end of the place, a large hired landau appeared, drawn by two thin horses, which a coachman in a white hat was whipping lustily. Binet had only just time to shout, Present arms! and the colonel to imitate him. All ran towards the enclosure, everyone pushed forward. A few even forgot their collars, but the equipage of the prefect seemed to anticipate the crowd, and the two yoked jades, traipsing in their harnesses, came up at a little trot in front of the peristyle of the town hall at the very moment when the National Guard and firemen deployed, beating drums and marking time. Present! shouted Binet. Halt! shouted the colonel. Left about much! And, after presenting arms, during which the clang of the band, letting loose, rang out like a brass kettle rolling downstairs, all the guns were lowered. Then was seen, stepping down from the carriage, a gentleman in a short coat with silver braiding, with bald brow, and wearing a tuft of hair at the back of his head, of a sallow complexion and the most benign appearance. His eyes, very large and covered by heavy lids, were half closed to look at the crowd, while at the same time he raised his sharp nose and forced a smile upon his sunken mouth. He recognised the mayor by his scarf, and explained to him that the prefect was not able to come. He himself was a councillor at the prefecture. Then he added a few apologies. Monsieur Tuvache answered them with compliments. The other confessed himself nervous, and they remained thus face to face, their foreheads almost touching, with the members of the jury all round, the municipal council, the notable personages, the national guard and the crowd. The councillor, pressing his little cocked hat to his breast, repeated his bows, while Tuvache, bent like a bow, also smiled, stammered and tried to say something, protested his devotion to the monarchy and the honour that was being done to Yonville. Hippolyte, the groom from the inn, took the head of the horses from the coachman and, limping along with his club foot, led them to the door of the lion door where a number of peasants collected to look at the carriage. The drum beat, the howitzer thundered, and the gentlemen one by one mounted the platform where they sat down in red Utrecht velvet armchairs that had been lent by Madame Duvache. All these people looked alike, their fair flabby faces somewhat tanned by the sun, with a colour of sweet cider, 
and their puffy whiskers emerged from stiff collars kept up by white cravats with broad bows. All the waistcoats were of velvet, double-breasted. All the watches had, at the end of a long ribbon, an oval cornelian seal. Everyone rested his two hands on his thighs, carefully stretching the side of their trousers, whose unsponged, glossy cloth shone more brilliantly than the leather of their heavy boots. The ladies of the company stood at the back, under the vestibule between the pillars, while the common herd was opposite, standing up or sitting on chairs. As a matter of fact, Lestie Baudoir had brought thither all those that he had moved from the field, and he even kept running back every minute to fetch others from the church. He caused such confusion with this piece of business that one had great difficulty in getting to the small steps of the platform. I think, said Monsieur Leroux to the chemist who was passing to his place, that they ought to have put up two Venetian masts with something rather severe and rich for ornaments. It would have been a very pretty effect. To be sure, replied Homais, but what can you expect? The mayor took everything on his own shoulders. He hasn't much taste. Poor Tuvache, and he is even completely destitute of what is called the genius of art. Rodolphe, meanwhile, with Madame Bovary, had gone up to the first floor of the town hall, to the council room, and, as it was empty, he declared that they could enjoy the sight there more comfortably. He fetched three stools from the round table under the bust of the monarch, and having carried them to one of the windows, they sat down by each other. There was commotion on the platform, long whisperings, much parleying. At last the councillor got up. They knew now that his name was Lieuvain, and in the crowd the name was passed from one to the other. After he had collated a few pages and bent over them to see better, he began. Gentlemen, may I be permitted, first of all, before addressing you on the object of our meeting today, and this sentiment will, I am sure, be shared by you all, may I be permitted, I say, to pay a tribute to the higher administration to the government, to the monarch, gentlemen, our sovereign, to that beloved king to whom no branch of public or private prosperity is a matter of indifference, and who directs with a hand at once so firm and wise the chariot of the state amid the incessant perils of a stormy sea, knowing, moreover, how to make peace respected, as well as war, industry, commerce, agriculture, and the fine arts. I ought, said Rodolphe, to get back a little further. Why, said Emma, but at this moment the voice of the councillor rose to an extraordinary pitch. He declaimed, This is no longer the time, gentlemen, when civil discord ensanguined our public places, when the landlord, the businessman, the working man himself, falling asleep at night, lying down to peaceful sleep, trembled lest he should be awakened suddenly by the noise of incendiary toxins, when the most subversive doctrines audaciously sapped foundations. Well, someone down there might see me, Rodolphe resumed, then I should have to invent excuses for a fortnight, and with my bad reputation. Oh, you're slandering yourself, said Emma. No, it is dreadful, I assure you. But, gentlemen, continued the councillor, if, banishing from my memory the remembrance of these sad pictures, I carry my eyes back to the actual situation of our dear country, what do I see there? 
Everywhere commerce and the arts are flourishing. Everywhere new means of communication, like so many new arteries in the body of the state, establish within it new relations. Our great industrial centres have recovered all their activity. Religion more consolidated smiles in all hearts. Our ports are full, confidence is born again, and France breathes once more. Besides, added Rodolphe, perhaps from the world's point of view, they are right. How so? she asked. What? said he. Do you not know that there are souls constantly tormented? They need by turns to dream and to act, the purest passions and the most turbulent joys, and thus they fling themselves into all sorts of fantasies, of follies. Then she looked at him as one looks at a traveller who has voyaged over strange lands, and went on, We have not even this distraction, we poor women. A sad distraction, for happiness isn't found in it. But is it ever found? she asked. Yes, one day it comes, he answered. And this is what you have understood, said the councillor. You, farmers, agricultural labourers, you, pacific pioneers of a work that belongs wholly to civilization, you, men of progress and morality, you have understood, I say, that political storms are even more redoubtable than atmospheric disturbances. It comes one day, repeated Rodolphe, one day suddenly, and when one is despairing of it, then the horizon expands. It is as if a voice cried, it is here. You feel the need of confiding the whole of your life, of giving everything, sacrificing everything to this being. There is no need for explanations. They understand one another. They have seen each other in dreams. And he looked at her. In fine, here it is, this treasure, so sought after, here before you. It glitters, it flashes, yet still one doubts. One does not believe it. One remains dazzled, as if one went out from darkness into light. And as he ended, Rodolphe suited the action to the word. He passed his hand over his face like a man seized with giddiness. Then he let it fall on Emma's. She took hers away. And who would be surprised at it, gentlemen? He only who is so blind, so plunged, I do not fear to say it, so plunged in the prejudices of another age as still to misunderstand the spirit of agricultural populations. Where indeed is to be found more patriotism than in the country? Greater devotion to the public welfare, more intelligence in a word. And, gentlemen, I do not mean that superficial intelligence, vain ornament of idle minds, but rather that profound and balanced intelligence that applies itself above all else to useful objects, thus contributing to the good of all, to the common amelioration and to the support of the state, born of respect for law and the practice of duty. Ah, oh, again, said Rodolphe, always duty. I am sick of the word. They are a lot of old blockheads in flannel vests and of old women with foot warmers and rosaries who constantly drone into our ears. Duty, duty. Ah, oh, by Jove, one's duty is to feel what is great. 
cherish the beautiful and not accept all the conventions of society with the ignominy that it imposes upon us. Yet, yet, objected Madame Bovary, no, no, why cry out against the passions? Are they not the one beautiful thing on the earth, the source of heroism, of enthusiasm, of poetry, music, the arts, of everything in a word? But one must, said Emma, to some extent bow to the opinion of the world and accept its moral code. Ah, but there are two, he replied, the small, the conventional, that of men, that which constantly changes, that brays out so loudly, that makes such a commotion here below, of the earth earthly, like the massive imbeciles you see down there. But the other, the eternal, that is about us and above, like the landscape that surrounds us, and the blue heavens that give us light. Monsieur Leuvin had just wiped his mouth with a pocket handkerchief. He continued, and what should I do here, gentlemen, pointing out to you the uses of agriculture? Who supplies our wants? Who provides our means of subsistence? Is it not the agriculturalist? The agriculturalist gentleman who, sowing with laboriously hand the fertile furrows of the country, brings forth the corn, which, being ground, is made into a powder by means of ingenious machinery, comes out thence under the name of flour, and from thence transported to our cities, is soon delivered at the bakers who makes it into food for poor and rich alike. Again, is it not the agriculturalist who fattens for our clothes his abundant flocks in the pastures? For how should we clothe ourselves, how nourish ourselves, without the agriculturalist? And gentlemen, is it even necessary to go so far, for examples, who has not frequently reflected on all the momentous things that we get out of that modest animal, the ornament of poultry yards, that provides us at once with a soft pillow for our bed, with succulent flesh for our tables, and eggs. But I should never end if I were to enumerate one after the other all the different products which the earth, well cultivated like a generous mother, lavishes upon her children. Here it is the vine, elsewhere the apple tree for cider, there colts are farther on cheeses and flax. Gentlemen, let us not forget flax, which has made such great strides in late years, and to which I will more particularly call your attention. He had no need to call it, for all the mouths of the multitude were wide open, as if to drink in his words. Tuvache, by his side, listened to him with staring eyes. Monsieur Desiree, from time to time, softly closed his eyelids, and farther on the chemist, with his son Napoleon between his knees, put his hand behind his ear in order not to lose a syllable. The chins of the other members of the jury went slowly up and down in their waistcoats in sign of approval. The firemen at the foot of the platform rested on their bayonets, and Binet, motionless, stood with outturned elbows, the point of his sabre in the air. Perhaps he could hear, but certainly he could see nothing because of the visor of his helmet that fell down on his nose. His lieutenant, the younger son of Monsieur Tuvache, had a bigger one, for his was enormous and shook on his head, and from it an end of his cotton scarf peeped out. He smiled beneath it with a perfectly infantine sweetness, and his pale little face, whence drops were running, wore an expression of enjoyment and sleepiness.
The square as far as the houses was crowded with people. One saw folk leaning on their elbows at all the windows, others standing at doors, and Justin, in front of the chemist's shop, seemed quite transfixed by the sight of what he was looking at. In spite of the silence, Monsieur Liovin's voice was lost in the air. It reached you in fragments of phrases, and interrupted here and there by the creaking of chairs in the crowd. Then you suddenly heard the long bellowing of an ox, or else the bleating of the lambs, who answered one another at street corners. In fact, the cowherds and shepherds had driven their beasts thus far, and these lowed from time to time, while with their tongues they tore down some scraps of foliage that hung above their mouths. Rodolphe had drawn nearer to Emma and said to her in a low voice, speaking rapidly, Does not this conspiracy of the world revolt you? Is there a single sentiment it does not condemn? The noblest instincts, the purest sympathies are persecuted, slandered, and if at length two poor souls do meet, all is so organised that they cannot blend together. Yet they will make the attempt, they will flutter their wings, they will call upon each other. Oh, no matter... Sooner or later, in six months, ten years, they will come together, will love, for fate has decreed it, and they are born for the other. His arms were folded across his knees, and thus, lifting his face towards Emma, close by her, he looked fixedly at her. She noticed in his eyes small golden lines radiating from black pupils. She even smelt the perfume of the pomade that made his hair glossy. Then a faintness came over her. She recalled the Viscount who had waltzed with her at Vaubiessard, and his beard exhaled like this air an odour of vanilla and citron, and mechanically she half closed her eyes the better to breathe it in. But in making this movement as she leant back in her chair, she saw in the distance, right on the line of the horizon, the old diligence, the hirondelle, that was slowly descending the hill of Lure, dragging after it a long trail of dust. It was in this yellow carriage that Léon had so often come back to her, and by this route down there that he had gone forever. She fancied that she saw him opposite at his windows, then all grew confused, clouds gathered. It seemed to her that she was again turning in the waltz under the light of the lustres on the arm of the Viscount, and that Léon was not far away, that he was coming, and yet all the time she was conscious of the scent of Rodolphe's head by her side. This sweetness of sensation pierced through her old desires, and these, like grains of sand under a gust of wind, eddied to and fro in the subtle breath of the perfume which suffused her soul. She opened wide her nostrils several times to drink in the freshness of the ivy round the capitals. She took off her gloves. She wiped her hands, then fanned her face with a handkerchief, while athwart the throbbing of her temple she heard the murmur of the crowd and the voice of the councillor intoning his phrases. He said, Continue, persevere, listen neither to the suggestions of routine nor to the over-hasty counsels of a rash empiricism. Apply yourselves, above all, to the amelioration of the soil, to good manures, to the development of the equine, bovine, ovine and porcine races. 
Let these shows be to you pacific arenas where the victor in leaving it will hold forth a hand to the vanquished and will fraternise with him in the hope of better success. And you, aged servants, humble domestics whose hard labour no government up to this day has taken into consideration, come hither to receive the reward of your silent virtues, and be assured that the state henceforward has its eye upon you, that it encourages you, protects you, that it will accede to your just demands, and alleviate as much as in it lies the burden of your painful sacrifices." Monsieur Lieuvain then sat down. Monsieur Dothere's got up, beginning another speech. His was not perhaps so florid as that of the councillor, but it recommended itself by a more direct style, that is to say, by more special knowledge and more elevated considerations. Thus the praise of the government took up less space in it, religion and agriculture more. He showed in it the relation of these two and how they had always contributed to civilization. Rodolphe with Madame Bovary was talking dreams, presentiments, magnetism. Going back to the cradle of society, the orator painted those fierce times when men lived on acorns in the heart of woods. Then they had left off the skins of beasts, had put on cloth, tilled the soil, planted the vine. Was this a good, and in this discovery was there not more of injury than of gain? Monsieur Dothere set himself this problem. From magnetism, little by little, Rodolphe had come to affinities, and while the president was citing Cincinnatus and his plough, Diocletian planting his cabbages, and the emperor of China inaugurating the year by the sowing of seed, the young man was explaining to the young woman that these irresistible attractions find their cause in some previous state of existence. Thus we, he said, why did we come to know one another? What chance willed it? It was because across the infinite, like two streams that flow but to unite, our special bents of mind had driven us towards each other. And he seized her hand. She did not withdraw it. For good farming, generally, cried the president, just now, for example, when I went to your house, to Monsieur Bizarre of Quincampoix. Did you know I should accompany you? Seventy francs. A hundred times I wished to go, and I followed you. I remained. Manures! And I shall remain tonight, tomorrow, all other days, all my life. To Monsieur Caron of Argoy, a gold medal, for I have never in the society of any other person found so complete a charm. To Monsieur Pan of Givry Saint-Martin, and I shall carry away with me the remembrance of you for a merino ram. But you will forget me. I will pass away like a shadow. To Monsieur Bellot of Notre Dame. Oh no, I shall be something in your thought, in your life, shall I not? Possein races, prizes equal to Monsieur Lerys and Coulomberg, sixty francs. Rodolphe was pressing her hand, and he felt it all warm and quivering like a captive dove that wants to fly away. But whether she was trying to take it away, or whether she was answering his pressure, she made a movement with her fingers. He exclaimed, Oh, I thank you, you do not repulse me, you are good. You understand that I am yours, 
let me look at you, let me contemplate you. A gust of wind that blew in at the window ruffled the cloth on the table, and in the square below all the great caps of the peasant women were uplifted by it like the wings of white butterflies fluttering. The use of oil cakes, continued the president. He was hurrying on. Flemish manufacture flax growing drainage long leases domestic service. Rodolphe was no longer speaking. They looked at one another. A supreme desire made their dry lips tremble and wearily, without an effort, their fingers intertwined. Catherine, he says, Elizabeth Larue of Sassatola Guerriere, for fifty years of service at the same farm, a silver medal, value twenty-five francs. Where is Catherine Larue? repeated the councillor. She did not present herself, and one could hear voices whispering, Go up, don't be afraid. Oh, how stupid she is. Well, is she there? cried Tuvache. Yes, here she is. Then let her come up. Then there came forward on the platform a little old woman of timid bearing who seemed to shrink within her poor clothes. On her feet she wore heavy wooden clogs and from her hips hung a large blue apron. Her pale face framed in a borderless cap was more wrinkled than a withered russet apple and from the sleeves of her red jacket looked out two large hands with knotty joints, the dust of barns, the potash of washing, the grease of wools, had so encrusted, roughened, hardened these that they seemed dirty, although they had been rinsed in clear water, and by dint of long service they remained half open, as if to bear humble witness for themselves of so much suffering endured. Something of monastic rigidity dignified her face. Nothing of sadness or of emotion weakened that pale look. In her constant living with animals she had caught their dumbness and their calm. It was the first time that she had found herself in the midst of so large a company and inwardly scared by the flags, the drums, the gentlemen in frock coats and the order of the councillor, she stood motionless, not knowing whether to advance or run away, nor why the crowd was pushing her and the jury was smiling at her. Thus stood before these radiant bourgeois this half-century of servitude. Approach, approach, Catherine Anissais, Elizabeth Larue, said the councillor, who had taken the list of prize winners from the president, and looking at the piece of paper and the old woman by turns, he repeated in a fatherly tone, Approach, approach. Are you deaf? said Tuvache, fidgeting in his armchair, and he began shouting in her ear, Fifty-four years of service, a silver medal, twenty-five francs, for you. Then... When she had her medal, she looked at it, and a smile of beatitude spread over her face, and as she walked away they could hear her muttering, I'll give it to our curé up home to say some masses for me. What fanaticism! exclaimed the chemist, leaning across to the notary. The meeting was over, the crowd dispersed. And now that the speeches had been read, each one fell back into his place again, and everything into the old grooves. The masters bullied the servants, and these struck the animals, indolent victors going back to the stalls, a green crown on their horns. 
The National Guards, however, had gone up to the first floor of the town hall with buns spitted on their bayonets, and the drummer of the battalion carried a basket with bottles. Madame Bovary took Rodolphe's arm. He saw her home. They separated at her door. Then he walked about alone in the meadow while he waited for the time of the banquet. The feast was long, noisy, ill-served. The guests were so crowded that they could hardly move their elbows, and the narrow planks used for forms almost broke down under their weight. They ate hugely. Each one stuffed himself on his own account. Sweat stood on every brow, and a whitish steam like the vapour of a stream on an autumn morning floated above the table between the hanging lamps. Rodolphe, leaning against the calico of the tent, was thinking so earnestly of Emma that he heard nothing. Behind him on the grass, the servants were piling up the dirty plates. His neighbours were talking. He did not answer them. They filled his glass, and there was silence in his thoughts in spite of the growing noise. He was dreaming of what she had said, of the line of her lips. Her face, as in a magic mirror, shone on the plate of the shakos. The folds of her gown fell along the walls, and days of love unrolled to all infinity before him in the vistas of the future. He saw her again in the evening during the fireworks, but she was with her husband, Madame Homais, and the druggist, who was worrying about the danger of stray rockets, and every moment he left the company to go and give some advice to Binet. The pyrotechnic pieces sent to Monsieur Tuvage had, through an excess of caution, been shut up in his cellar, and so the damp powder would not light, and the principal set-piece that was to represent a dragon biting his tail failed completely. Now and then a meagre Roman candle went off, then the gaping crowd sent up a shout that mingled with the cry of the women whose waists were being squeezed in the darkness. Emma silently nestled against Charles' shoulder. Then, raising her chin, she watched the luminous rays of the rockets against the dark sky. Rodolphe gazed at her in the light of the burning lanterns. They went out one by one. The stars shone out. A few drops of rain began to fall. She knotted her fichu round her bare head. At this moment the councillor's carriage came out from the inn. His coachman, who was drunk, suddenly dozed off, and one could see from the distance above the hood between the two lanterns the mass of his body that swayed from right to left with the giving of the traces. Truly, said the druggist, one ought to proceed most rigorously against drunkenness. I should like to see written up weekly at the door of the town hall on a board ad hoc the names of all those who during the week got intoxicated on alcohol. Besides, with regard to statistics, one would thus have, as it were, public records that one could refer to in case of need. But excuse me. And he once more ran off to the captain. The latter was going back to see his lathe again. Perhaps you would not do ill, Homme said to him, to send one of your men or to go yourself. Leave me alone, answered the tax collector. It's all right. Do not be uneasy, said the druggist when he returned to his friends. Monsieur Binet has assured me that all precautions have been taken. No sparks have fallen, the pumps are full. Let us go to rest. Ma foi, I want it, said Madame Homais, yawning at large. But never mind, we've had a beautiful day for our fate. Rodolphe repeated in a low voice and with a tender look, 
Oh, yes, very beautiful. And having bowed to one another, they separated. Two days later, in the Finale de Rouen, there was a long article on the show. Homais had composed it with verve the very next morning. Why these festoons, these flowers, these garlands? Whither hurries this crowd like the waves of a furious sea under the torrents of a tropical sun pouring its heat upon our heads? Then he had spoken of the condition of the peasants. Certainly the government was doing much, but not enough. Courage, he cried to it, a thousand reforms are indispensable. Let us accomplish them. Then, touching on the entry of the councillor, he did not forget the martial air of our militia, nor our most merry village maidens, nor the bald-headed old men like patriarchs who were there, and of whom some, the remnants of our phalanxes, still felt their hearts beat at the manly sound of the drums. He cited himself among the first of the members of the jury, and even called attention in a note to the fact that Monsieur Homais, the chemist, had sent a memoir on cider to the Agricultural Society. When he came to the distribution of the prizes, he painted the joy of the prize winners in dithyrambic strophes. The father embraced the son, the brother the brother, the husband his consort. More than one showed his humble medal with pride, and no doubt when he got home to his good housewife, he hung it up weeping on the modest walls of his cot. About six o'clock a banquet prepared in the meadow of Monsieur Ligard brought together the principal personages of the fete. The greatest cordiality reigned here. Diverse toasts were proposed. Monsieur Liovin, the king, Monsieur Tuvache, the prefect, Monsieur Dothery, agriculture, Monsieur Homais, industry and the fine arts, those twin sisters, Monsieur Le Pliche, progress. In the evening, some brilliant fireworks on a sudden illumined the air. One would have called it a veritable kaleidoscope, a real operatic scene, and for a moment our little locality must have thought itself transported into the midst of a dream of the thousand and one nights. Let us state that no untoward event disturbed this family meeting. And he added, Only the absence of the clergy was remarked. No doubt the priests understand progress in another fashion. Just as you please, messieurs, the followers of Loyola. End of part two, chapter eight.